Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. On September 15th, 2019, I wrote down what the world looked like to me that day. And comments and questions and things flooded in. And I thought, well, I'm not going to write the next night because that's just going to crowd the zone and nobody wants to hear from me every night. And so I didn't write on the 16th of September, but I felt by the 17th like I needed to answer people's questions. So I wrote again on the 17th and I've written every night since. People always talk about reaching their audiences. And for me, it was the opposite. My audience came to me and said, can you please explain what's going on? And it happens that I'm very well trained at explaining politics and the political system and American history. So yeah, I could. That's Heather Cox Richardson. Her letters from an American land in the inboxes of some two million of us every morning as they have for the last four years. She's a historian who's able to look back into our nation's past and bring an often unexpected and always clarifying perspective to these turbulent times. And remarkably, she does it with the intimacy of a friend. Well, this is so great to be talking with you because I actually do think I know you. A few days ago, when the the weather was unexpectedly wonderful, you wrote a letter that said you spent the whole day kayaking and you didn't have the strength to type You said you had things to say, but you'd save them for tomorrow. And I thought, oh, I hope Heather's okay. (laughs) Actually, that was a great day because I went out kayaking and kayaked for a couple of miles, and my sister saw me and said, wait, wait, I want to go too. So I kayaked home that two miles, and then she and I decided to go around a nearby island. And by the time I'd been on the water about six hours, I was too tired that night to do anything but go to bed. When you kayak, are you thinking about the letter that you're going to be writing when you get back? Or are you able to take your mind off of everything? That's actually a really good question. I find that what I do and what works best for me is I spend the mornings thinking about the world, reading about what's happening in the news. But then what puts it all into perspective and into some sort of an order is repetitive exercise. So I Mm. always try to exercise for at least two hours in the afternoon, walking or kayaking. I can't do anything I have to concentrate on, but that repetition, it's funny how I'll sit there and say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to put, you know, how am I going to put any order into this tonight? And by the time I'm a mile into a walk, I'm like, oh, oh, it's really clear. This is the story that comes first, and then these follow after it, rather than just simply looking at this tangle of barbed wire. One of the things that makes your letters so hard to put down, I think, is that it's not only as if they were written personally to a friend, it's also that they have evidence behind them. Well, what I am trying to model is essentially what I consider part of the project of the Enlightenment, the idea that our reality should be based in fact, not in emotion, not in an argument that is divorced from reality, but that there are discernible facts, things happened, and that that is what we should be basing our decisions as a society on going forward. What I'm really trying to do is say to people, you know, you don't just have to go with what I say or what somebody else says. There are actual 
places you can go to find the documents that say, yeah, this is what they said in the court case that happened yesterday. And that's just an attempt to try and remind people that we could live this way always if we wanted to. And there seems to be a hunger for that approach. How did you start this? I mean, how did you get that that rapid expansion of the universe that happened when you started up these letters? Did you did you expect such a response? So the funny thing is I never intended to write these letters. It was entirely accidental in that um, I had been writing ever since a, a couple of books ago. I had had, you know, maybe 22,000 followers on Facebook, and I tended to write an essay about one thing or another about once a week. And it wasn't necessarily always about history. Sometimes it was observations about life. Sometimes it was about a fun poem, you know, just whatever I felt like writing that day because I love to write. But in the summer of 2019, I hadn't written for a couple of weeks or a couple of months because I was moving and I was painting my house and I was doing all kinds of stuff. And I got stung by a yellow jacket, and I'm allergic to yellow jackets, and I didn't have an EpiPen with me. And I also live a long way from medical care, although we have a wonderful first responders uh, group here in the area where I live. And I thought, well, I better, I can't get in a car. I was alone. I can't really get in a car. I better sit down and figure out how bad my reaction is going to be. And um, so I sat down, and I thought, well, I guess I I might as well write an essay to my followers who are worried because I haven't written in so long. So I wrote down on September 15th, 2019, I wrote down what the world looked like to me that day. And comments and questions and things flooded in. And I thought, well, I'm not going to write the next night because that's just going to crowd the zone and nobody wants to hear from me every night. And so I didn't write on the 16th of September But I felt by the 17th like I needed to answer people's questions. So I wrote again on the 17th, and I've written every night since because the the comments and the questions and the followers just went off the charts as people were trying to get their feet under them during the Trump administration and beyond. And so I think it was really just a natural growth. People always talk about reaching their audiences. And for me, it was the opposite. My audience came to me and said, can you please explain what's going on? And it happens that I'm very well trained at explaining politics and the political system and American history. So yeah, I could. At which point in this process did you go to Substack? It was remarkably early because, again, I never intended to do this. I was teaching full-time. I had another book that I was finishing. Um, I was moving house, so I was incredibly busy. Um, And I... The, the numbers went off the charts really quickly on Facebook, and St- Substack was just starting out, and they called me, and they had one crucial piece that nobody else did, because people had been asking me to send out a newsletter, but even by then, my numbers were so high, all of the other places that at the time could do it had very small increments in which you you could send out batches of emails and Substack was the only one that could handle huge numbers all at once and that's why I started to go to Substack and why I have stayed there and they send out well over a million emails for me every night in under a minute and that's just a technology that nobody else at the time had. In my memory, all of it is kind of like a, I I sort of see it as a train coming down the hallways of my building with me being like, "Uh uh-oh, I have to learn to use new technologies and write every night and manage my teaching and manage all this. And it was really 
really a community forming. And I like to say now I'm the coffee pot that a community has formed around. It's not that I'm doing very much unusual. It's that people are asking questions and and asking for clarifications and criticizing and, and making comments. And I'm learning along with everybody else. It's very much like being, honestly, it's very much like being a teacher in a college classroom. So what kind of a reaction do you get? Have you, have you learned something from the subscribers? Oh, every day. Every day. Um, I, I learn about their perspectives. I learn about um, new topics that I would never have covered otherwise. But the other thing that, I, that has really jumped out to me is how much people care about American democracy and how much they care about each other. And on top of that, how incredibly decent smart and creative millions of Americans are. And I don't know if it was COVID that made people really become creative and start to turn back to the arts and to music. I don't know if it's the the tensions that are inherent right now in uh, our democracy. I don't know if it's always been there and I just didn't see it before, but it really does feel like there is a big community in this country that maybe doesn't get noticed so much by traditional media, but that very much is stepping up to the plate in this moment to redefine what we stand for. One of the things I wonder about nowadays is that when you make any kind of a statement that you intend to be truthful, it's often regarded as just political. How do you avoid that? Do you, do you consider your letters political? No, I don't. I am accused of being a shill for the Republicans often and a shill for the Democrats often. And I always say, <laughs> I am a shill for American democracy because I really look at the world from a very historic lens that doesn't really fit very naturally in modern day politics. But this is one of the reasons I use sources. Again, the, the idea is to be demonstrating that we can have a reality-based community. Now, there are areas in which people are simply not able to accept that. If you cite sources, they simply say, well, those sources are wrong because that's not my perspective on this. And that's just, you know, all, all I can say on that front is, you know, we'll see where we end up um, in in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, which one of us is going to have been right. But so often people who are making um, judgments based in emotion, j based in what they want to be true, those things turn out not to be true pretty quickly. Um, they rarely come back to apologize. But for example, I got a piece of, a very strongly worded piece of, e of, of mail this summer in which somebody assured me that all of our banks were going to collapse. And I forget the date, but it was in July of, of 2023 and that everything would be worthless. And that person sure would like to have a conversation with me the day after when we were all ruined. And I thought, great, I'm here for it. But I never heard from that person again. So, um, so I think all you can do is take the long trend and figure out the long historical perspective and figure that with luck, if you're using reputable sources, your work will stand the test of time. And we will all screw up, but at least if we screw up, let's hope we're doing it in good faith. Well, one of the things I don't understand is you're having taken on the responsibility to do a letter at the end of the day, every day. How did you also write your latest book, Democracy Awakening? 
<laughs> Honestly, that was the stupidest thing I've ever done. And that's saying something, <laughs> let me tell you. How did you do it? So um, what I did to write that book was interesting. And I think the book has taken on a life of its own because of that. I began and I would write the book during the day. So that's all I would focus on during the day. And then I would try, as I say, to look at the news, get some... I, I start the day by looking at the news. Then I would write the book. Then I would look at the news again. Then I would try and get some exercise. And then I would write at night, write the essays at night. Because they're a very different kettle of fish, those essays, than writing a book is. But what that meant was that the book, the first draft of the book, which was intended to be a series of essays answering the questions that people ask me every day. How do the parties switch sides? What was the Southern strategy? Um, how does the Electoral College work? And crucially, how did we get here where are we and how do we get out? Those original series of essays, 30 short essays, I wrote very quickly and I refused to look backward um, because I figured then I would never move forward. I would end up rewriting all the time. So I wrote them and I threw them aside, finished all 30 of them, and then took a break about, of about you know three months to you know sort of get my life in order and do a number of things, including getting married. And when I went back to that manuscript, what emerged was something entirely different than what I had intended to write. In the way that a classroom often turns out differently than the material you bring to it, if you trust your students enough to make the material their own. And what emerged from the rereading of that book was the picture of how democracies crumble at the hands of an authoritarian and crucially how they can get them back. So I ended up rewriting the manuscript then about by about 80% of it ended up getting rewritten. But that was very quick because I knew then exactly what I was going to write. And what emerged then was a manuscript that felt in many ways like it was not my own, that it really belonged to my readers who are ultimately the people to whom I dedicated it. And it became something very different than me and my work in a funny way, which still went on every night. So it was a huge um, physical commitment, really more than a, a mental commitment, although it was that too, simply churning out that many words in that way. But it ended up not being the same thing as the letters, which are, you know, really me and my readers on a nightly basis the book ended up sort of feeling like I was simply speaking for a lot of other people. So it turned out in the end to be possible, I think, because of that. But I won't be writing another one with that speed anytime soon, let me tell you. <laughs> and in the middle of all of that, you got married. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. One of the things that I love about the book, and the letters too in many ways, is that you track the pendulum that swings back and forth in our history between two great documents, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and, and the values that are expressed in the Declaration of all people being equal, in those days all men being equal, and the values expressed strongly in the Constitution on private property, the importance of private property. Those seem to be the goalposts that we go back and forth from one to the other as as history goes on? Well, I think that's true. I think it's important in the larger scheme to recognize the old truism in American history, that if you have rights, you stand on the Constitution. And if you want rights, you stand on the Declaration. 
And because, of course, the Declaration of Independence is a series of principles. It was never part of our fundamental law. It's a series of principles to which Abraham Lincoln looked during the American Civil War, in which he rededicated the nation to a new birth of freedom, in which everybody would be, and of course, he, he meant men, but would be treated equally before the law. And that concept, those principles that are embedded in the Declaration of Independence, at the end of the day, I think, are what has preserved American democracy and crucially expanded it. Because what we have found since the beginning of first the Declaration and the Constitution is that people who are not included in that polity, people who have been marginalized and excluded from it, have constantly been able to hold up the Declaration of Independence and say, wait a minute, these principles sound great. Why aren't I included in them? And that, I think, is the beauty of those ideas, that once you have established them as a principle, they are expandable. Um, they were not automatically expandable, but the people who believed in their expansion had the ability to use those ideas to say, as I said, you know, what about me? You know, one of the things that, that jumps out with the establishment of the Declaration of Independence is people like Black poet Phyllis Wheatley writing to an indigenous minister saying, hey, you know, those principles sound pretty good. Uh, how come they're not including us in them? And that idea of human equality, I think, is infinitely expandable. And I don't think in any way that the founders recognized that it was expandable that way. They probably, some of them would have been horrified by it. But that doesn't, their own human limitations do not necessarily detract from the brilliance of that proposition. And one of the things that, that I try and do is constantly reiterate those principles and to suggest that we are perhaps now at a time when we can both recognize them again and also expand them yet again as we have so frequently in our past. It's kind of an exciting time to be alive. When we come back from our break, Heather Cox Richardson tells me why she's optimistic about our future. Because as she puts it, a strong majority of us prefers democracy to authoritarianism, and it's worth fighting for. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Heather Cox Richardson. As you said, your writing attempts to show us where we are, how we got here, and how we can get out. And I remember, as I read your book, Democracy Awakening, that around 1850 or so, and for the next 10 years, 
there was one of those times when we went toward one document, toward the Constitution, and then went back toward the Declaration. Exactly. Because what had happened is in the 1850s, elite Southern enslavers had insisted that the Constitution protected their right to property. And there's this, this I'm sorry, I was going to say wonderful speech, but it's wonderful to a historian. Um, what it embraces is not necessarily a wonderful principle. But in 1858, uh, a South Carolina enslaver named James Henry Hammond gives a speech in the Senate in which he talks about the way he sees the world. And people know it as the cotton is king speech, because what he's saying is that we can do anything we want because we in this region of the country grow the, the cotton for the world, and that makes us the most powerful people in the world. So people think of it as the cotton is king speech. But he also talks about how the society is set up in such a way, human society is set up in such a way that uh, most people are you know, lazy, and they're not very smart. They're very loyal, and they're strong, but they're essentially the mudsills of society. They're the pieces of a building that get driven into the mud to support the the uh, the beautiful homes above that. And those beautiful homes, he says, are people like him, the elites, the people who have good educations and understand how the world works. And it's their right and their duty to direct those mud sills labor in such a way that they amass the value of that labor and are able to move society forward through, you know, great educations and putting famous paintings on the walls and even having things like olive oil, which in America is extraordinarily rare, right, and very expensive to import in its glass bottles in the 1850s. And he says, you know, really... The, the founders very deliberately, or the framers very deliberately, set up a society in which people like us should rule because they were afraid of democracy. And what they really were trying to do was concentrate power among a very small group of us. And even if 99% of the American people want the government to do something like, in that case, uh, create public universities or build a, a, a road across the Cumberland Gap, even if 99% of the American people want that to happen, it can't because the, the Constitution is extraordinarily, limit, extraordinarily limited and all the government can do is it can protect property. And Abraham Lincoln listens to that. This is 1858. He listens to that speech, the very famous speech, and he says, wait a minute here. That's not what government's supposed to be about. And in 1859, he explicitly gives a rejoinder to that speech in which he says, we in our country don't believe that most people are mudsills, that most people are meant to work for other people. We believe that this country should be based on the idea that every man can work for himself, that free labor is the centerpiece of our world and our society, and that the government really should be focusing on those individual people starting out who are working hard, who are producing value, and who are producing enough that they will eventually support shoemakers and shopkeepers and people in the next tier of society, who will eventually encourage people at the very top of society to have factories and, you know, a very few large enterprises that will in turn hire people at the bottom. And we are truly the centerpiece of American society and that we are the ones who are guaranteed uh, a say in our government by the the Declaration of Independence. And he begins really to push by, the 18, by about 1858, 1859, the idea that the Constitution really 
was never designed to set up a world in which a very few slave owners could run everything, that it was designed to put in place a world established by the Declaration of Independence. And so when he gives the Gettysburg Address in 18, November of 1863, he begins it with those famous lines, four score and seven years ago. And when he does that, he is not pointing back to the year of the creation of the Constitution. He's pointing to the year of the Declaration of Independence, 1776, and saying that is when our fathers um, created a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And with that, he really recenters the idea of the Declaration of Independence as the place where we can have both a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, but also the place where we're going to have a new birth of freedom. And it's a crucially important moment because from there we're going to get, of course, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution outlawing systemic slavery except as punishment for a crime, and in 1868, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution in which the federal government is going to protect equal rights within the states. So what about the third element? How do we get out? Is democracy awakening? Do you see that happening? Are you wishing it would happen? Are you hoping? Where where are we in your mind? Well, I'm all of those things, but I do see it happening. So the 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 larger argument that has jumped out to me in the that that rereading of the manuscript that became the book Democracy Awakening was that the way that people tend to give up on democracies is when people who are trying to garner power misuse language and they misuse our history. And the way they misuse language is very simple. And you can see it in the 1850s, you can see it in the 1890s, to some degree you can see it in the 1920s and and, and you can very much see it in the present. And that is, they begin to say that um, ways in which the, the government has been trying to hold the playing field equal are, in fact, privileging minorities. And when that happens, uh, they begin to focus on the, the concentration of wealth, on saying, you know, we don't need to have a government hold the playing field level. We need, in fact, to turn the the markets loose to make sure that people can get as much as they want, however they want it. What's happened is that as money has flowed to the very top, it's created a very hollowed out middle class, which is able to be um, mobilized to support a strong man who promises to return that person to power by saying, listen, we can go back to a perfect past. And mind you, there's never been a perfect past. If only you listen to me and we follow a series of rules or laws that are divinely inspired or inspired by our traditions that will enable you to be powerful again, people like you to be powerful again. And once they've done that, once they have got that following, it's not a huge step to turn it into a movement by making it begin to act aggressively and cruelly toward somebody they define as an other, because that cements a population behind a strong man psychologically. Once you have hurt somebody else, you need to believe that person deserved to be hurt in order to justify your own participation in that. So crucially, how do you then get turn that around. You turn it around, I think, the way that we are doing it nowadays. That is, we reclaim our language of inclusion, of a multicultural society, of the Declaration of Independence. And you say, wait a minute, we don't believe in a society in which a very few people should rule over the rest of us. We believe in a society in which all of us should be treated equally before the law and have a right to a say in our government. 
And crucially, that also means recognizing our real history for what it is, not that our country sprang fully formed out of the brow of George Washington or John Adams, but rather that democracy has always been about putting skin in the game and has always been about saying, wait a minute, we're not living up to our potential. Wait a minute, we're not treating everybody equally. Wait a minute, our government is not simply holding a level playing field. It's privileging one group over another. And when we recognize that and we recognize that we all have a role to play in this democracy, it's those moments that really truly wonderful expansions of our liberal democracy happen. And so I think that we are doing it. I think we're doing it not only with people like you and me talking, but with the movements we see going around, going on around us right now to expand workers' rights, to expand women's rights, to expand minority rights, and to push back on the idea that a very few of us should rule the others. That being said, I worry. I worry in states where a small minority has managed to take over the mechanics of government and, for example, kick people off the voting rolls or gerrymander states in such a way that a 50-50 state like North Carolina is now gerrymandered to the point that it's virtually impossible for a Democrat to or for Democrats to ever win control of the state delegation of North Carolina. So I don't think the deal is done But I think people have woken up to the fact that they need to put skin in the game. And when they do, they will recognize that a strong majority of us prefers democracy to authoritarianism, and it's worth fighting for. It's interesting to me how often you note that the rise of a strong man depends to a large extent on looking back to a mythical past that was somehow perfect. Everybody has an Eden in their culture that they imagined we ought to go back to. I always love that. I always say to people, when was that? Was it like, um, was it, was it 2.30 <laughs> on February 13th in 1923? Because the truth is we have always had struggles. We have always lived through terrible times or we've always endured terrible times. We haven't always, all of us always haven't lived through them. Um, but, but the idea of a perfect past serves an authoritarian by suggesting that there is a series of rules that if that strong man imposes, we can get back to that perfect past. Whereas recognizing that democracy is never perfect, it is never finished, it is by definition always striving and always contesting the ways in which we create a society that serves the most people in the best possible way. That gives us all agency, and it makes democracy come alive in a way a perfect past doesn't. It's also a much more accurate representation of where we have been in the past. Do you see people being aware more of the true past, of the swings that we've gone through, and what is possible to accomplish if we do exercise our efforts to communicate about the things we're talking about now? Do you see that happening? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just the very virtue of the fact so many people are interested in our history now in a way that they haven't been for a long time. But in addition to that, what really has jumped out to me as somebody who's been in the classroom since 1987 is the degree to which now young people, but also people who are long out of college, are really interested in the mechanics of democracy. That is, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, I want everybody to have rights. It's another thing to say, when are the deadlines for filing papers to run for school committee? 
You know, the mechanics of saying this isn't a question of having my heart in the right place. We actually have to make the levers move. And that has really jumped out at me in the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years among young people. And I would associate that to some degree with the literature young people have been reading in that era, which focuses on young people pushing back against establishment governments that did not work for them, say, for example, in the Harry Potter books or in the the Hunger Games series. But I would also say that it has been picked up more recently within the last six years, probably, um, or six to, to eight years by older Americans as well. Well, that's an encouraging note to bring our conversation to a close on, for the time being anyway. I wish we had more time now, because there's so many other things I wanted to ask you about. But we always end our show with seven quick questions. First question, of all the things that there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Oh, what a great question. I wish I spoke more languages. Because I don't think you can really, I mean, no, it's not only that I think you can't understand other countries. I wish I spoke the languages that other Americans spoke. That's interesting. That's a good one. Okay, next one. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? This is a secret, but I'm going to tell it here. I always say, well, I look at it a different way. Do you know about, I don't say, you're an idiot. I say, have you thought about it this way? And here's some things that suggest that, you know, I won't say that suggests that I'm right, but I always start with, well, that's not really how I look at it, as opposed to saying you're an idiot. It sounds like you're on the right track there. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, you're killing me here. Um, I get a lot of strange questions. Um. I think this one of the stranger questions I've gotten was when somebody asked me to explain how the Illuminati had taken over both American political parties. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, where do you, where do you start, right? <laughs> okay, next. How do you deal with a compulsive talker? I sit back and listen. You do? You have the patience? Or I exit the situation. But if it's a situation I can't exit, I just listen. I, I feel a little steamrolled, but, you know, what can you do? It's not, it's not a good place to expend energy. Okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation? It depends on the circumstances. Because if you really don't know anybody and you don't know anybody at the table— The best conversation I have ever had with strangers was when a man across the table, we were at a a friend's um, 90th birthday party, and the man across the table said, listen, we're all never going to see each other again. We all are here because we love the same man. So let's talk about one of the most important things we have ever done that helps define who we are. And it was, I, re, I still remember the entire conversation and what people, how people thought that they had contributed to the world. And it was absolutely fascinating. Obviously, you're not going to do that with your brother-in-law's roommate, right? And in that case, um, I usually just try and get people talking about themselves and see what makes their eyes light up. And if you can get people talking about that, it does not matter what it is, whether it's a love of bugs or, you know, a love of literature or a love of 
pickling cucumbers, it's going to be an interesting conversation. What gives you confidence? In myself, I have none, essentially. Um, I know what I love to do. What gives me confidence in humanity is it has been my experience in my 61 years that most people are decent people. A few of them are not, but I feel like if we all of us recognize the decent people among us and work together, we will come out with a good outcome. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? That's a hard one because there are so very many. And so I'm going to give you a different answer than I've ever given anybody else. And that is, when I was a kid, we live in a very rural area. We did not really have access to television. There, there was a television, and, and it got three channels, but they were in a perpetual snowstorm, which made it hardly worth watching. But what we did have was a, a barn full of books that had come down from the owners before us and also from my grandmother. And my grandmother was a flapper in the 1920s. And she really admired that lifestyle. I did not know her or my grandfather. But she had a whole bunch of novels from the 1920s. And there was one of them that was the sort of uh, novel that a 1920s flapper would read. And it was called All That Glitters. I'm sure nobody's ever heard of it, and I'm sure it doesn't exist any longer Um except maybe in our barn. But I read that book and it opened to me the understanding that people in other times were just people and that the world that my grandmother, as I say, did not know, admired was full of terms I didn't know and people I didn't know and places I didn't know and understandings about the world I didn't know because it was, believe me, the world of a flapper in the 1920s was very different than a girl growing up in rural Maine in the 1960s. But it made me think that if I could just understand those different worlds of people in the past— I could probably understand the worlds of people in the present as well. So it was one of those funny things where it's a completely unimportant book. I'm sure it was a potboiler um, in the 1920s, but it opened up a whole new world to me in the barn in, in the 1960s on the coast of Maine and became, I think, uh, one of those turning points. Another wonderful story. you got a million of them. Thank you for a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor at Boston College, where she teaches 19th century American history. Her many books include To Make Men Free, A History of the Republican Party, 
and how the South won the Civil War, oligarchy, democracy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America. Her new book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. You can receive your own letter from an American by subscribing for free at heathercoxrichardson.substack.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dr. Peter Hotez. In his white coat and bow tie, he became a familiar figure on TV during the COVID pandemic, laying out the scientific case for the safety and efficacy of COVID vaccines. He also became the target of far-right opponents, whose false arguments against vaccinations put him at physical risk. In his new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning, he spells out how anti-science has become a major societal force and a lethal one. This was not a fun book to write because it talks about a very dark chapter in, in American history. I mean, when I got my MD and PhD in New York a long, long time ago, you know, being a scientist or developing vaccines was seen as something almost heroic. You know, back then I never imagined that I'd have to defend vaccines or, or that people who make vaccines would be seen as pariahs. And, and so the book really talks about my decades going up against anti-vaccine groups. And I have to talk about the fact that 200,000 Americans, 200,000, Alan, needlessly died because they refused a COVID vaccine. It's almost unbelievable, you know, when you think about that. Peter Hotez and the rising threat of anti-science. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>